we begin our time in God's Word today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning asking your blessings on our time of study. Lord, we believe that your Word is truth, and we pray that you would work through your Spirit to apply this Word to our heart. Lord, give me the strength to preach it as I should. Lord, it is, I will confess, a challenging passage to explain and to understand. And Lord, I pray that we would do uh, as it commands, not being bogged down by the uh, the particulars, but understanding the, the rule of love that we are to apply and to live it out faithfully among our brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 14, and we're going to look at the second part of what I've explained to be this, this application of Paul's rule of love. Remember at the beginning of chapter or in the middle of chapter 13, Paul gives us this rule that we're to owe no one anything except for the debt of love. And so then Paul begins to apply or to work out how it is that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And to start with, he began, as we saw last week, by talking to those who he calls the weak in faith, the, uh, the, those who are new to the faith, those who are coming out of other religions, out of other practices, and they're coming to faith in Christ, and we're to welcome them, but we're not to argue over opinions about how to practice the faith, because these people were coming with these strict moral codes, uh, whether they were coming out of Judaism or out of some other pagan religion, and they're applying those to their Christian faith. And, and those who had been in the faith for a long time recognized that a lot of those rules and, and things weren't required, but they, that they were not to judge one another based on the opinions of men, that we're to sacrifice our preferences and our practices for the good of others. We're not to allow how we view uh, the the walk uh, in Christ, whether it be that, you know, I think you ought to dress to the nines when you come to church, or I think you ought to have a shaven face when you if you're going to preach from the pulpit. I don't know if anybody thinks that, but I'm sorry. I'm not going to say. I shaved this off a couple of years back, and my wife immediately said, put it back. So, uh, <laughs> so I... But, but if we have those preferences, we're not to allow those to interrupt or interfere with our fellowship and our welcoming of fellow believers. Now, I mentioned last week that there might be some questions that, we, that would come out of that because, as I said, we're going to deal with this in pieces. I'm not going to be able to deal with it all at one time. And so, on the one hand, we saw last week that there were those who, uh, who have built up these strict traditions and wisdoms around, wisdom around themselves uh, to keep from falling in sin. And the warning that Paul gives to them is don't allow or be careful not to judge others by the strictness with which you live. But that doesn't tell us anything about those who don't live so rigidly. So for the one who tends to throw off tradition and, and wisdom, the one who says, you know, I'm free in Christ and I know that those are, are just, that's just wisdom or that's tr just tradition and I understand I don't, I don't have to shave every day and I don't have to wear uh, a coat to, to church and I don't have to follow these man-made rules. For the person that 
is so quick to throw off tradition and wisdom. What is the debt of love that they owe to their brothers and sisters in Christ? And to answer that question, let's read together Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 23. Romans chapter, thir- uh, tra- chapter 14, starting in verse 13, God's word says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a, blo- in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one whom, for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So this morning I want to look at this text in two parts. I want to first look at the love that forbids hindrances. Love forbids hindrances. And second, I want to look at some examples that Paul gives us of those hindrances that we should avoid. So first, let's consider the principle that love, love for our neighbor, love for our brother and sister in Christ, forbids hindrances from verses 13 through 19. Now, before we understand this principle that Paul is laying out here, we need to understand just what Paul is talking about that, uh, talking about. So we need to make three clarifications about this passage. And one, the first one I want to point out, goes back to verse 1. So we look back in verse 1 of chapter 14 and notice who Paul is talking about here. Now Paul is talking about two different types of believers that, he, that are kind of set against one another or that might come into a struggle within the church or might struggle with their ability to love one another. Back up in verse 1, he says that we're to welcome the weak in faith. Uh, and Paul will, in other passages, he'll talk about the distinction between the weak and the strong. And so there are these two designations that Paul gives us, and we need to understand what they mean because they're different. What Paul means by weak and strong is different from what we might think. Because I think when we, when we hear of someone who is weak in the faith, quote unquote, we, we probably think of someone who has low or no morals or no uh, reservations about anything 
and can't resist temptation and so on and so forth. And when we hear of someone who is strong in the faith, we might be tempted to think of someone who is very strict in his adherence. You know, he's, he's got all these rules and he's very faithful to follow those rules as he's pursuing his walk with Christ. Maybe he doesn't eat or drink certain things. He doesn't go certain places. You know, the whole, uh, you know, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't date girls that do kind of person. But... But what Paul means by these designations is actually a difference between immaturity and maturity. When Paul says the weak in faith, when he refers to the weak in faith, he's actually referring to the strict person. That's the person that he has in mind. Now, why is that? Uh, Well, think of it this way. The rules that we tend to put on our religious practices, the traditions that we adopt, the social mores that we enforce, they're kind of like training wheels. You know, when a a little girl who's six years old, she's first learning to ride a bike, you put those training wheels on her, and I've I've had four now, and I'm not real sure whether the training wheels do any good at the end of the day. But training wheels are intended to keep you upright, right? They're intended to help you learn to ride a bike. And we think nothing of, and we expect a little six-year-old girl or boy to ride a bike with training wheels. But what we don't expect is a 16-year-old girl to ride a bike with training wheels, right? If you see a 16-year-old girl riding around with a big old bike that's big enough for her, but it's got little training wheels on her on it, you think something's wrong with that girl that she hadn't learned to ride a bike yet. And, uh, and now the training wheels are good when that girl is six years old. They enable her to participate with other people who are riding bikes. But when she's 16... Interestingly enough, those same training wheels can prevent her from doing the same thing. They can prevent her from going with her friends and riding the bikes that they ride and things like that. In the same way, the strict traditions and rules that we place on ourselves can keep us on the road of faith when we're starting out. They help us to discipline ourselves and to observe uh, strict guidance in, in observing the word and doing what we're supposed to do. But as we grow as a believer, those same rules might prevent us from fellowshipping with other believers, from participating in meaningful worship, or going somewhere that we can witness. So let me give you an example of what I mean by this. One of my heroes in preaching is W.A. Criswell. I don't know if y'all have ever heard of W.A. Criswell, but he's a famous preacher in First Baptist of Dallas back in the... 20th century. But W.A. Criswell, I read his autobiography and, and he said that when he was coming up in the early 1900s, Christians did not go to movies. It was, it was as forbidden as going dancing was and, and all that other stuff. You didn't go to a movie. And if you were a good Christian or a good Baptist, you didn't go to movies. But eventually, over time, W.A. Criswell began to say, you know, there's more good to movies uh, and and some movies than than I first realized. And he began to loosen his views on uh, on movies. Now, imagine it because movies are so prevalent now. Imagine your good friend. Maybe he's a believer. Maybe he's not a believer. 
your good friend coming to you and saying, hey man, you heard, y'all heard about that new Top Gun Maverick movie? You want to go out and uh, maybe let's get a bite to eat and then go out and watch that movie and just hang out? Imagine you saying today, uh, I can't go to movies. I'm a good Christian and I can't go. Now, what happened in you saying that is you missed an opportunity to go fellowship with a believer if that person was a believer or have extra time with him if he was a non-believer to witness and to, and to talk about the movie after and talk about the meaning behind the movie and things like that. You missed that opportunity because of training wheels, right? Because you absolutely under no circumstances would go to a movie, you missed the opportunity to have a good, fun fellowship with a believer or a good relationship building opportunity with an unbeliever. Second, we need to make sure we understand the issue that Paul is dealing with. He says in verse 13 that we should decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now the issue is that we don't want to allow our liberty in Christ to become a reason for someone else to doubt or to sin. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul puts the same issue like this. He says, Take care that you don't allow your right to become a reason for someone else to stumble. Yes, it is true that you are free in Christ, and as we talked about last week, no one should judge you for uh, disobeying some tradition or wisdom that people have built up over time. But that doesn't mean that even though we are free in Christ, we are free from our obligation to our brother or sister. So, now it's important to understand what I mean and what Paul means by this, and just a point of clarity here, Paul is not saying that we should be concerned about making anyone and everyone stumble. Uh, People have often quoted this passage as a way of saying that we shouldn't allow anything to affect our witness. The idea being that we should avoid certain things, we should avoid certain events or content or whatever because an unbeliever might see us and it might give them a reason to reject the gospel. But that's actually not at all what Paul has in view here. He is referring to how our actions affect other believers, not how they affect non-believers. So, The third thing that we need to clarify is how our freedom in Christ can become a hindrance. In verses 14 and 15, Paul says that it is true that nothing is unclean in and of itself. What he's referring to there are the cleanness laws of Leviticus chapter 10 through chapter 15. And y'all, if you I'm in the middle of reading through those right now in my own Bible reading and it it's tough. You got to do it early in the morning if you want to stay awake, you know. And it, and if you've ever read those, you know that everything is regulated in the Old Testament from how you deal with wounds to what type of animals you eat and all of that. And and I encourage you to go read that in your Lord's Day reading if you have the opportunity today. Um But read those passages and you'll see that they deal with everything. And uh, when we read that, we kind of think, well, what he's talking about there, God's commanding them that and he's saying that certain things are evil and certain things are good. 
But that's not what the cleanness laws are dealing with. Okay, when when God says that certain things are clean and certain things are unclean, he's not saying that the unclean things are evil. He's saying that they are common. So let me give you an example of how our view of uncleanness doesn't work. Um, If we think that that means evil, then we've got it wrong, because when God one of the things that God says is unclean is when a woman has a baby. When she has a baby, it, there's a rule that she has to uh, remain uh, removed from society for eight days, and then she goes through a cleanness ritual in which she's purified. Now, none of us believe, that, ha- and God doesn't believe, that having a baby is an unclean or an unholy thing, right? Nobody believes that in here. I hope you don't. Um, what is dealing with there and is dealing with in all of the uncleanness laws are uh, the word unclean literally means common. So God's people in the Old Testament were to be a worshiping people. They were to be they were literally always in worship. They were always before the face of God. And one of the things that God is trying to teach the nation of Israel and teach us with those cleanness laws is that God is holy. And to be holy is to be set apart, to be uh, totally other, to be totally different. And so when it when God sets up these cleanness laws, he is setting up a measure between what is common and what is reserved for worship. So certain animals are unclean because they're not used in worship. And certain animals are clean because they're used in worship. Certain things are not allowed in worship because they're common. They're things that you do every day and you shouldn't come to the temple expecting to do in the temple what you do every day. And so they're considered unclean, not because they're unholy or unrighteous, but because they are to be common and set apart for uh, and, and to worship God is to be something that is holy and set apart and you're to prepare yourself to do it. So when Paul says that there is nothing that is unclean, he is getting at the heart of the gospel. Jesus, in his resurrection and his ascension, has brought us near to God. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit now resides in you. So you are never separated from God. There is never a point in your life as a believer where you are unclean. I want you to get that in your head because that is one of the biggest struggles as a believer is that we think that because we did something or we went somewhere or we were with someone that we are now unclean and we have to clean up before we can come to church again or we can clean up before we can be right with God again. And that is wrong. Because of the work that Jesus has done through his blood and his sacrifice and his resurrection, you are clean. And there is nothing you can eat. There is nowhere you can go. There is not even anyone that you can be associated with that can make you unclean or separate you from fellowship with God. You are clean. As Paul says, there is, we recognize that there is nothing that is unclean. But, <laughs> but Paul says in verse 14 and 15, even though we know that nothing can make us unclean, 
there are still weaker brothers and sisters in Christ who might be affected by what we do around them. To go back to my biking analogy, you know, uh, Harmony is is eight years old and she's learning. She's at that point. That's one of the reasons I thought about the training wheel analogy is we just bought her a new bike that doesn't have training wheels so that she can learn to ride without uh, training wheels. And and, uh, you know, Harmony is learning to ride and and she we we can go around on the pavement on a smooth pavement pavement and learn to ride. Now, if I were to say, well, come on, Harmony, let's go down this mountain bike trail. Uh, y'all would think I was an abusive parent, right? You would think I was crazy. Now, can I go down that mountain bike trail? Absolutely. Is Harmony missing out by not going with me down that mountain bike trail? Yeah, she is. But it's better and safer for us to stay on the pavement and coast around than to take the risk of going down that trail because it could literally do irreparable damage to Harmony if I were to take her down that trail, right? And in a similar way, we might lead a weaker believer to sin by enjoying something that we know is not wrong, but that they might be led to further doubt and sin through. So now that we understand the principle of love here, Let's consider some examples of hindrances from verses 20 through 23. Paul says that we should not, for the sake of our freedom to eat meat that we want, eat food that we want, destroy the work of God. And then in verse 21, he gives two specific examples of freedoms that might cause someone to stumble. So first he says that we should not eat meat. If it causes someone to stumble. Now in the South, that isn't that much of a challenge for us. You don't, we don't run into many vegans or vegetarians in the South. Um, but even here, and you might not know them, but I know some. Even here, we have some people who religiously adhere to certain, certain diets. Whether it's uh, you know, a certain diet because they want to stay in shape and they religiously adhere to that. Or, or, or whether it's veganism or, or vegetarianism. I know of some people that observe that. And they observe it for religious reasons. Many of the people that I know that observe it, they often quote 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, which says that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And they use that as justification for not eating meat or stay, eating a healthy diet or something like that. So if I know... If I know that my brother or sister in Christ has that diet, has that religious view of their diet. Now, I'm not saying that you should make an exception for everybody that has a diet because you couldn't do that, uh, especially January through Uh, (laughs) mid-January. But but what I am saying is if you know of someone who is strict about their diet because they don't want to offend God, then you should be mindful of that and you should be mindful of what you eat because you don't want them to stumble. If I invite them over for dinner, I might want to make an effort to give them a vegetarian option is what I mean. I might want to make an effort to find out what they like and feed them what they like in an effort to prevent them from stumbling. So that's kind of a difficult example for us to apply now.
But let me give you an easier one. (laughs) Paul says, second, that we should not drink wine if it causes someone to stumble. Now, again, before I get into what this means, and, and the deacons have a meeting Thursday, so their agenda doesn't deal with what I'm about to say, but after I say this, it might deal with what I'm about to say. But um, let me remind you of what uh, I said last week when I made the distinction between law and wisdom and tradition. Remember I said that we tend to conflate all three of those into law. Um, And so remember that there is wisdom and there are traditions and those things are good. They're meant to keep us on the rails. They're meant to be like those training wheels that keep us upright. Now, does the Bible counsel against drinking? In some cases, yes, it does. For example, Proverbs chapter 23, verse 29 warns against being addicted to strong, strong drink. But in other cases... Wine is actually viewed as a blessing. In Isaiah chapter 25, well-aged wine is said to be at the wedding supper of the Lamb at the end of times. Psalm 105 verse 15 says that we are to praise the Lord, catch this, for wine that makes glad the heart of men. Jesus' first miracle in John chapter 2 was to do what? Turn water into wine. And His last supper involved wine. So again, this is an issue of wisdom. It is not sinful to drink, but it might be unwise. And more to the point, we shouldn't do it if it might cause our brother or sister to stumble. So if you have a brother in Christ who avoids alcohol and you decide to have your men's Bible study at a bar, then you might risk causing your brother to stumble. Now, no joke, some people do that. So just just to make the point. On a final note, one final note that I want to point out about these examples. Paul is not arguing here for total abstinence to anything and everything that could offend. And all you people that like me can take a breath and relax. Because he's not arguing here that we should totally give up meat because it might offend a vegan somewhere. Notice in verse 22, he says to keep your faith between you and God. Paul makes the same argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 about meat that is sacrificed to idols. And there he says to avoid offering, uh, avoid offending the weaker brother who thinks eating sacrificial meat is a sin. But when you go to the market, buy your meat and don't worry about where it comes from, is what he says. So Paul's rule of love deals with specific offenses, not any and every possibility of an offense. And here's the reason why. There are a hundred ways that this could apply. This could apply to anger, right? Because the Bible says... To, in one case, it says to be angry and sin not. And then in another case, in James, it says that the anger of men does not produce the righteousness of God. So what do we do? Do we not get angry when a child is abused? Do we not get angry when there, someone is teaching heresy? Yes. Do we get angry at a ball game though? And fuss at the ref? No, we don't. So you understand how to apply this, right? 
You're careful about how and when you're angry because of how it might impact other people. There, there, it deals with what we watch. I gave the example of Top Gun Maverick, but, but uh, you might not want to invite that same friend that you want to fellowship with to the latest NC-17 movie when you go to watch it, right? We understand how those things work. We understand what is good and helpful and what might risk causing someone to stumble. Same thing with music and the places we might go. But the important principle that we have to remember is that we owe our brothers and sisters in Christ a debt of love. We need to think more highly of them than we do ourselves. So our first reaction around our religious vegetarian shouldn't be, well, if you don't like meat, guess what? I'm having rare steak tonight. (laughs) Instead, what we might want to say is, I'll have steak tomorrow. If we're eating supper together, I'm going to be careful that I don't cause you to stumble by what I eat. We do this because we want them to grow and mature in Christ. We want them to remain in we we want to remain in good fellowship with them. We want to have opportunities to fellowship with them and avoid leading them astray in doing so. So may we be mindful of the ways we affect the faith of others. And may we be willing to sacrifice that they might grow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, we pray that it would have its effect. That you would uh, take out anything that I might have said that distracts or causes people to stumble. But that they would get to the root of the truth of this word. And that they would apply it to their lives. That they would see their weaker brother as truly that, a brother or sister in Christ, and that they would uh, see how they, what they do might impact them and be careful about flaunting their liberties for the sake of their own freedom rather than living in, uh, in fellowship and obedience with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, bless us now as we go to this time of remembrance, as we remember the Lord's Supper and, and remember what you have done for us. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.